Like I said, we're in Daniel 7 today. And the theme that we kind of picked for the book of Daniel is that God is sovereign always. And you might think with the, the change from Daniel 1 through 6 to Daniel 7 through 12, the theme would change, but it doesn't. And in fact, especially in Daniel 7, you'll see this idea that God is sovereign always highlighted even more clearly than we might have seen before. Before we actually get into Daniel 7, I want to tell you a quick story. Last week, I was uh, in my class for, for my master's, and we had to do some in-person stuff, and so there was a guy that was sitting next to me, and he was this, one of those like really insightful, thoughtful guys, but also like says something every single time someone asks a question. He was a cool dude, though. Uh, and the professor asked us, uh, what are ways that we stay productive even when we're busy? And so this guy pops his hand up and he starts talking about how he does this like new thing. I don't know. I think it's on TikTok or something. I'm not on TikTok, so I have no idea. But it's like habit stacking or something. And so he will take something that he, he likes to do and then something that he doesn't like to do and he'll do them at the same time. So he, he was sharing how he goes to the sauna and the first half of his time that he's in the sauna, he'll answer emails or, or texts or things for work and things like that. And then the second half of the sauna, he just relaxes. And, and so he's, he's talking about this. And over the course of the story, he says, yeah, so like the first 20 minutes that I'm in the sauna, I'm answering emails. And then the second 20 minutes, I'm just relaxing. And I turn the dude, I'm like, out loud. I didn't mean for it to be out loud. But I was like, bro, you spend 40 minutes in the sauna? <laughs> and, and my professor looks at me and she laughs and she was like, out of this whole thing, this, all these tips that he's given on, on how to stay productive, the only thing you got is that he spends 40 minutes in the sauna. And I was like, yeah, because that's superhuman. <laughs> Anyways, I, I think the, the point is that sometimes, as humans, it's easy for us to get lost in these details that can distract us from the point. And we're about to read Daniel chapter 7, and as we do it, we need to, to be diligent about looking at the whole picture. It's going to be tempting for us to get stuck in these certain details or these certain sections. And, and, and a problem that could arise is when we, we look at these and we draw lines, definitive lines about something that we aren't given definitive information on. When we draw lines that we aren't necessarily supposed to draw. Instead, as we approach this chapter, let's ask God to help us draw lines where we should draw them. And then give us grace, give ourselves grace, give others grace when we hit things that, quite honestly, are, are, are really just perplexing. And one way that I think we might be able to draw these, these helpful lines is if we look at this chapter and we kind of organize it into three uh, points. And so the first point that we're going to look at after we read is that God is in charge, right? God in charge. The second one is that Jesus is our king. Jesus, our king. And then the third one is our king prevails. So we're going to read. We're, we're, we're going to read 1 through 14, I believe, and then we're just going to kind of uh, talk about, you'll, you'll get the vision, and then Daniel will ask for an interpretation. So we're just going to kind of talk about that. It's a pretty long chapter. Um, so we're going to read 1 through 14, and then talk about 15. Uh, to the end, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. 
So let's read. Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from them another, uh, another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, this horn, behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So then you'll see in the rest of the verses, Daniel is, is confused by what he sees. He's perplexed, and so he asks for an interpretation. And uh, he's, he's told that this, this great beast has this little horn with the face I refer to it as, as the little horn that trash talks. It says that he says great things. These aren't necessarily great things as in like, hey, God is awesome or really wise things, but they're great things as in like boastful and proud and, and, and things that are against God. And uh, we see that the saints are um, persecuted by this horn for, for a time, but ultimately God prevails, right? That's, that's what we'll see mapped out in the rest of this chapter, and we'll be in those verses later. So let's pray, and then we're going to get in and start breaking this down.
Uh, dear Lord, we come to you with a chapter that isn't necessarily on the surface the most clear. And so God, I pray that you will allow these words and, and, and the things that Daniel saw to jump out to us, that the Spirit will make clear what is supposed to be made clear. God, give us humble hearts as we approach this. Lord, as, as we look and we see reference to kings and nations that oppose you, God, we can't help but think about our, our brothers and sisters in Christ that are in nations that so openly oppose you. God, we pray for Christians that are in the Middle East. God, we pray for Christians that are in Russia, North Korea. Lord, we ask that you would be close to them, that you would comfort them. God, we ask that you would protect them. God, ultimately we ask that you would equip them to share the gospel to places that so desperately need the gospel. God, we pray for Christians here who feel persecuted, who are persecuted, God. We pray those th same things. Lord, on a, on a day where uh, we, we look at our mothers, God, we thank you for them. Lord, we thank you for the hearts that you have given our mothers and, and the, the way that they nurture and they care for our children. God, there's so many other things that uh, the mothers in this room have done and, and it's impossible to thank them for all of it. But God, we turn to this passage and again we pray for clarity. We pray that um, I, would be, I would be able to speak clearly and, and speak what you want spoken, Lord. We love you, God. Amen. So, really, right off the bat, we kind of get a picture set for when this is taking place. We're told in the first couple of verses that uh, this is taking place in the first year of Belshazzar. So if you remember, if we jump back a little bit, Belshazzar is the king in Daniel chapter 5 who throws that uh, extravagant party and it's kind of like the culmination of his rebellion to God and the hand comes and it writes on the wall and basically like, like no one knows what the hand's writing and so then they call in Daniel, they remember there's this guy and he can like interpret things and he's been given gifts by God and so he tells him like hey basically this is saying you're going to lose your kingdom, it's going to fall and then, by the way, uh, Belshazzar dies that very night, right? And the, the uh, Medo-Persian Empire comes in. So this is Belshazzar. Now, this is before that happens. This is probably around 11 years before it happens in, in uh, 550 B.C. So in the ancient world at this time, Babylon is still in the height of its power. There's no nation that really rivals Babylon. There's another timing though, that we see in the first couple verses here. We see verse 2 says that the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, I don't know exactly what Daniel saw. I don't, I don't know what the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea looks like. But what, what we do get is we get a picture that 
something is happening. Well, well, who's causing this to happen? Well, it's the four winds of heaven. So it's God, right? God is doing something. He's stirring something up. Now, Babylon, Dan, Babylon and then Daniel also, who is in Babylon, may, may not know exactly what it's going to look like yet, right? It's, it's stirring up. If you think of like baking a cake and you're stirring the ingredients together, you don't have the finished product. There's still something to come. And he's stirring up what? He's stirring up the great sea. So if you read different commentaries, uh, different commentators, pastors will, will uh, point out this could refer to maybe Gentile nations. It could refer to just the chaos of the world, right? It refers to the world and the great sea being the chaos and the turbulence of the world. I think all of that is fine here. And, and spoiler alert, I'm not trying to hide any cards here. The four beasts that we talked to, the, the, when Daniel gets the interpretation... He's told that these four beasts refer to four kingdoms that are going to rise up, four kings. And I would say that these kings, these four beasts, represent the same four kings that we see in Daniel chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar has his dream of the statues. So you have uh, the first beast being the, the Babylonian Empire, representing the Babylonian Empire. The second beast representing the uh, Medo-Persian Empire. Third beast the Greek Empire, and then fourth beast, the Roman Empire. We're going to get into all that in a second. But if you, if you see it this way or you don't, you think they represent some other nations, that's fine. The point remains the same. We see God doing something, and all of these nations don't see it coming, right? And so what we, we see is that every nation, no matter how powerful, no matter how strong, no matter how mighty, no matter how much they might think of themselves, is subject to God's timing and His plan. Right? We, Babylon didn't sit down and have this meeting where they're like, hey, in 11 years, right? Belshazzar says, hey, uh, all my generals, get here. We're going to have a council. 11 years, we're going to be conquered, and I'm going to be killed. Right? They, they didn't have that meeting. They don't see it coming. No nation is predicting the fall of their own nation. Babylon's at the height of its power, yet Daniel is seeing that Babylon is about to be overtaken by this other beast. I mean, Rome, if you know anything about your ancient history, I got to teach ancient history for the first time last year, and we do a whole section on how Rome rises. And if you know anything about how Rome came to power, before it was unified, it was the, the Italian peninsula was this um, little, really not super significant part of the ancient world where there's just different powerful rulers in different areas of this peninsula. It wasn't unified. The most notable would be the Etruscans. And so these guys, whether, even if they may want to, they don't realize that they're going to become one of the most powerful empires to ever exist on the earth. They don't, they don't see it coming. It's this divided peninsula that really can't rival the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks. And then within these empires, you're, we're still subject to God's timing. I mean, you look at Daniel in Babylon, and, and something's happening, right? He's, he's seen, God's communicating to him that Babylon is about to be taken over. And in Daniel's head, he's been in exile from Israel for so long, I'm sure he had it planned out. When Babylon falls... It's not going to be to some other country where he's going to have to live in exile longer. It's, it's going to be the restoration of Israel. He's patiently waiting. In fact, in later chapters, we're going to hear Daniel asking, like, when is, when is this going to happen? 
So, he, so we see Daniel go from, from suffering and exile to suffering and exile. And, and it just points to the fact that we're all subject to God's timing. And I know what you're thinking. Like, hey, we get it, okay? God is sovereign. You've said that before. God is sovereign. We get it. I mean, we, we go to this church. We affirm God's sovereignty. That part's easy. And it might feel that way until the rug gets pulled out from under you. And like Daniel, you go from this one terrible situation in your life to another terrible situation in your life. I think we often get caught thinking that we're going to have this trial, but then at the end of it, it's going to be like, oh, there was this one thing in my life, and then I got through it, and then boom, I'm good. And it's all sunshine and and rainbows, and then that doesn't happen. And then that's when any seed of doubt that you have in God's sovereignty is going to try to take hold. That's why we have Christians who might affirm God's sovereignty and then they go through something terrible. Like, man, okay, maybe, maybe God's good. He's just not sovereign. And then it's the slippery slope. And so it's so important that when we read passages like this, we continue to preach to ourselves that God is sovereign always, that He is in charge. That's where we have to draw the line. That's one of those lines that we have to draw and we, have, we cannot move off of. But we, we often get preoccupied with who are these beasts or, or when's this trash-talking little horn going to come around or what's this fourth beast look like or, or what is it? And, and, and we get sidetracked into these things that we don't necessarily need to draw definitive lines on and it distracts us from the fact that God is absolutely in charge. And all that stuff that I talked about, listen, I I don't know, I can't tell you definitively when it goes down. What I can tell you definitively is that it goes down when God decides it's going to go down, right? It is all subject to His timing. And we draw that line there, and then we also draw that line in our lives, right? Our lives are subject to God's timing. That can be frustrating, it can be challenging. It can, it, can, it can be scary, right? I'm not saying that it's sinful for us to look at the world and, and, and sometimes think like, man, this is, this is a little freaky sometimes. I mean, Daniel leaves this vision like, what is going on? But that's not where we live, right? We, we trust and we understand God's timing. All right. I think that covers everything, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I stalled long enough. We're going to get to all the beasts, but we do need to draw this line. And I'm not saying ignore things that are hard to understand. Don't, like, I, I don't want you to take this as ignore things that are hard to understand. We're going to get through all of this. It's just be careful where you draw the lines. So moving on, out of this stirring up, out of this sea that Daniel is seeing, he sees God doing something, and up comes the four beasts. So I think it might be helpful. I already told you that I, I, I think, and many commentators point out, that these beasts refer to a succession of empires, right? So first Babylon, then the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. What I think might be helpful is just to walk through each beast, the descriptors we get of them, and then maybe just a point or two as to why they are often compared to those following empires. So we're going to start with beast one, the lion that has the wings of an eagle. We're told that the wings are plucked off, that it's made to stand on its own two feet, and that the mind of a man was given to it. And this beast represents Babylon. 
lions often, that animal represented the Babylonian Empire. Uh, if you look at how Babylon is described in other prophetic books, that, then you see that uh, this would remain consistent. And then also we see Nebuchadnezzar is uh, lifted up and then he is humbled, right? And, and so this idea that this beast's wings were taken off and it is humbled. We then get to beast number two, the bear. It's raised up on one side, it's got three ribs in its mouth, and it's told to devour much flesh. And this would represent the, ba the, the empire that comes after Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, again, raised up on one side, could possibly refer to this like two-sided kingdom, where one side, the Persians, were more powerful. It could refer to uh, the three ribs in its mouth, could possibly refer to the three nations that the Medo-Persian Empire conquered. Uh, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. And then it's told to devour much flesh. And there's this story of the Persian Empire that I love when I teach ancient history. I, I can't remember which uh, emperor it was, and I really didn't want to go digging through all my uh, seventh grade social studies stuff. But uh, one of the rulers of Persia, there's this um, rebellion in a Greek city-state in, in Ionia, which is right next to the Persian Empire, they were kind of taken over by the Persians, and, and Athens kind of like uh, instigates this rebellion. Says like, hey, I, like, yeah, rebel against Persia here. And Persia quickly stamps it out, and they just don't have time or, or really the ability at that point to go conquer Athens. However, this empire has one of his servants come up to him every single night at dinner. Every time that they would, hey, they would have dinner, this servant is supposed to go up to him and whisper in his ear, remember the Athenians. Because he wants to crush them. He wants to devour them. So just this picture of an empire that wants to devour much flesh. Beast 3 we see is the four-headed leopard uh, with four bird wings. And it's, we're told that dominion is given to it. And so these wings could represent speed, right? Four wings represent this, the, the speed of this empire. And this empire represents Greece. And what we know about Greece is that when Alexander the Great unifies these Greek city-states, they just torch through the Persian Empire. In like seven to ten years, they've conquered the whole thing. We're told that it has uh, four heads. And again, if you study your ancient history, you know that when Alexander the Great dies pretty suddenly and, and at a really young age, his empire is then divided up to four different generals within his army. And then also, just this idea of, it's specifically said that dominion is given to this empire. And all, all of these beasts only get their dominion because God has given it to them. But we see it listed with this one, and it just makes me think, if you know much about Greece, Greece, before it was unified, were, were separate city-states, right? Powerful city-states. You have the Athenians and the Spartans, and they fight several wars with each other, the Corinthians, right? All of these different Greek city-states, and kind of the one that you really don't talk much about is Macedonia. But out of all the places, out of all the places that end up unifying Greece and turning it into this powerful empire, Alexander the Great comes from Macedonia. And so just this idea that it's just like <laughs> the only way this kingdom is, is getting dominion is it to be given to it. Again, these are just possible explanations. And then Beast 4 
uh, we're, we're not told exactly what kind of beast it is, but we are, we are told that it has iron teeth, that it devours, it breaks, and it stamps, that it's different from the other beasts. It has ten horns. It has the little horn with a face that is saying great things. And, and then when Daniel gets the interpretation of his vision, we're told this, this uh, kingdom is vast, that it covers the whole earth, right? And so we often refer to this kingdom as Rome. And when you think of just the ruthlessness of Rome, when you think of the greatness of Rome, how, how massive the empire was, how it conquered pretty much the known world at that time, you can see how these comparisons are made. And so again, these nations seem to fit the visions given to Daniel. And while these four nations may directly fulfill this vision, we also see that this vision alludes to the fact that on earth, empires are going to exist that are in direct opposition to God. We'll see this with Babylon and Greece. We'll see it in, in the uh, ruthlessness of the British Empire. We'll see it in, in the ruthlessness of the French Empire. We'll see it in these uh, really misguided missionary trips from the Spanish Empire when they, they really just want to conquer uh, South America and, and get all the gold that's there. We'll, we'll, we'll see it in Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, China, Russia, North Korea, even America. I mean, listen, I teach. I spend every day in our state-sponsored schools and, and it's just not even worth going into the, the rebellion and the opposition that exists there, right? So we see this in all of these nations. Vodi Bakum points out, when he preaches on this, he points out that all of the, these, this succession of beasts represents the violent nature in which empires come after other empires. Every time you see a massive, powerful empire on earth, there is a violent and chaotic transition of power. And so these beasts represent, he points out, these beasts represent the, the violence and the chaos of the world. So with all that being understood, the important thing is what happens in 9 through 12. So let's reread 9 through 12 really quick. If you start in verse 9, it says, As I looked, right, so all the beasts are now before Daniel, and he says, As I looked, Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked. Then, because of the sound of the great, the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. In my notes, I titled this passage, God Takes His Seat. Listen, I teach at a school where there's a lot of fights. I'm just letting you know there's fights all the time. Sometimes every day, sometimes multiple times a day. And I've never in my entire seven, eight years of teaching at this school, I have never once seen some kid trash talking another kid and that kid's solution in the fight is to go take a seat. 
Never. You don't, you don't take a seat if there's a threat, right? You stand up. If you are threatened by someone, you stand up. You make yourself big. You start trash talking back. You show them that you can take them down. Why? Because you, you don't want the pulp beaten out of you. If you go and take a seat and this dude's a real threat, you're, you're, you're going to be on the ground in a matter of seconds. You only take a seat when there's no threat. And what do we see God do here? He takes a seat. Why? Because God's in charge. Because these beasts, these great beasts that we see come up out of the sea are no threat. Because He is in charge. And when He takes a seat, we see that His throne is, is filled with fire, that His clothing is pure white. And then what happens? Th this beast with the trash-talking little horn, boom, he's dead. So we know that this, this, this God that's referred to here is in charge. A very encouraging thing is, is what this fire and this clothing refers to, right? His, this fire is the judgment, so we know that these beasts that are in rebellion to God will be judged. And, and that's good, if God is good. And, and so then we see that the clothing that the Ancient of Days is wearing represents his purity, right? His, his pure um, woolen hair, it represents his purity. So we know that, that these nations are going to be judged. And they're going to be judged righteously because God is righteous, because he's pure. These judgments are fair, they're good. And so when we look at the world, one thing that we don't need to do is, is be crippled and live in fear, right? If it's true that these beasts, while fulfilled by these four empires, still we see the patterns of these beasts today in, in empires, we don't need to sit here and live in fear because we know that God is going to handle it. We also don't need to harbor and hold on to anger towards the, the rebellion and the lawlessness. Why? Because God is going to handle it. We have a pure and a holy judge who sits on the throne. He's completely in control. And he's completely good. That's the picture that we get from these first verses. And that's the line that we should draw. God is in charge. And that's a good thing until you remind ourselves, until we remind ourselves, that when we're left to our own devices, we're on the side of the beasts, right? So when we're left to our own devices, we're on the side of the beasts. So now it's a terrifying thing. And that's where Jesus comes in. So the second point that we see is that Jesus is our king. Let's read 13 and 14 and 18. We're just going to read three verses, 13, 14, and then we're going to skip ahead to 18. So right after that fourth beast is killed, 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. The dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And if we go to 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. 
I don't know how to highlight this any better than the text did, so let's just go verse by verse so we don't miss anything. The first thing we see is in 13, we see it refers to uh, like a son of man, right? That's who we're talking about here. It says, um, out of the cloud, uh, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. So if, if you've read Ezekiel, you'll see Ezekiel referred to the Son of Man several times. And when, it, when, when that's the case, it's referring to just the humanity of Ezekiel, the fact that, that Ezekiel is a human. And so uh, what we get here is um, this sense of humanity for this person who approaches the throne. But there's something different, right? It says, like a Son of Man. And if you know this reference here, it, it simply means that Jesus, who is God, took on the, the likeness of man, right? And so this, this God, who is now like a son of man, is approaching the throne. And he's presented before him. And notice, when the beasts are, in, in some sense, presented before God, the beasts are here and God takes a seat, what happens to them? Well, they're, they're killed, this fourth beast is killed and given over to fire. And we're told the other three beasts have a dominion that lasts, or, or their dominions taken away, but their, their lives um, are prolonged just for a season and a time, right? But when, the, the son, when Christ, we've already identified this, this like a son of man, right? Christ, when Christ approaches the kingdom, or when Christ approaches the throne, he's given an everlasting dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Why is this important? If you look at Hebrews 9.15, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it for you really quick. We're, we're, we're told why this is important. Therefore, he is, meaning Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so this picture that's painted here, if you're unfamiliar with like church lingo or you didn't grow up in the church, if you happen to be here, first off, we're pumped you're here. But this picture that we get is Christ ascending to God, right? The verse, notice 13, says he came to the Ancient of Days and this new kingdom is ushered in. Because of his death and his resurrection and his ascension, he goes to the Father, he's the mediator of the new covenant, and what are we told? We're told that now there's this, this era where all peoples, all nations, all languages can serve Him. That is, if people look to the true and righteous King, the King that is given a dominion that lasts for forever, those who serve Him will not uh, face the same fate as those who serve the beasts. And so here's the deal. I mean, we understand this, right? Especially those who have, who have put their faith in Christ. We understand this. You put your faith in Christ and you don't face the fate of the beasts. You face, um, because of what Christ did, you, you get this everlasting kingdom and you, and you have life. But when we look around, sometimes we, we say, if we're Christians, man, that person definitely doesn't serve Christ. Like, I know that person doesn't serve Christ. 
but his life seems pretty good. It doesn't seem like he is facing death like these beasts. And if, if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, if Jesus is not your king, and you are honest with yourselves, you, may, you can claim Jesus as your king, but if you're honest with yourselves, and you say, yeah, Jesus is not the king of my life, there is, there is no evidence that Jesus is the king of my life. But then you say, honestly, my life's not that bad. That's, that's, that's something that we have to address, right? Because we're told that if you serve the beasts, you're dead. And you're given over to fire. And the problem is, we're looking at an, a, a specific point in infinite lives, right? We're all eternal. Whether you say Jesus is your king or not, we are zooming in and we're looking at these zoomed in pictures of infinite lives. You could take if you take a scoop of ice cream, take a scoop of vanilla ice cream, and you zoom in really, really close, and you snap a picture, and then you go up to someone and you say, hey, what's this a picture of? They might say a cotton ball, or they might say the snow, or they might say a bed sheet, anything, right? A, a white shirt. But it doesn't matter what they say it is, it's actually a scoop of ice cream. The only reason you get confused is because you've zoomed in so close. And sometimes we zoom in so close in these people's lives, and we say, man, honestly, this person who doesn't serve Jesus, his life looks pretty good. And, and, and my life, I serve Christ, it's pretty hard. It's really hard. But that's because we're zoomed in way too close. Because when you zoom out and you see this little speck, this little speck of happiness in this person's life, but you see where it ends up, you would never say that life is a happy life. And then you see this little speck of trial in your life, but you see where your life ends up, you would never say that's an unhappy life. And so, so when we consider all this, we have to ask ourselves the question, who is our king? Honestly ask yourself the question, who is your king? And then the final point that I want to make, if you, if you sit here and you say, yeah, Jesus is my king, right? Because of what, my faith is in Christ. And because of what he did, I put my faith here. He is my king. Then know that our king prevails. There's no challenge. He comes out on top. The last point, our king prevails. So we get to this point in the passage where Daniel asks for an interpretation of the visions that he sees. And we've talked about the beasts, and we've talked about the Son of Man, and the saints, and those who put their faith in Jesus inherit the kingdom, and, and, and we've talked about that. However, there's two parts of this that we really haven't touched on, maybe intentionally, <laughs> but Daniel's really curious about them. I would have been too. And that is the fourth beast with the ten horns, and then the one little horn that's talking a lot of trash. And so Daniel goes and he says, hey, like I'm really interested in what, like what is this whole thing that's going on? And when we read this passage, we probably think, hey, what is this whole thing that's going on? A couple things that I don't know. First, I don't know who the ten horns are specifically. We're told they're ten kings in this fourth kingdom. Maybe you have an idea. Maybe you went through Roman history and you've identified each of these ten horns. I don't know. I'm just telling you, we're not told who they are, so it's probably not one of those lines that we really, really need to draw 
Second, I don't know specifically who this horn saying great things is. There's, there's ideas. There's things that are pointed to. It, I mean, you might have an idea. You might think it's a specific Roman emperor. Uh, emperor. You might think it's a singular antichrist. Maybe a singular antichrist that's still to come. Maybe it's just this general uh, um, idea that there is, there is this antichrist attitude and you'll always experience this and, and there will always be this antichrist-like attitude that will be persecuting those who are in Christ. Again, we're not told specifically who it is, so it's not really the main point. Third, I don't know for sure how long a time's time and half a time are. There's commentaries that point out how long it is. There's, there's people that say they've got it figured out. That's fine. I just generally think it probably refers more to a set number of years that God has ordained. Again, we're not given a solid number. But here's what we know. In verse 21, we know that this horn wages war against the saints and for a time prevails. But when God comes and gives judgment, in verse 26, it's, verse 26 says its dominion will be gone and it will be consumed and destroyed. Listen, I tend to think that this horn, maybe it represented someone in particular, but it, it really represents these antichrist-like attitudes that still exist, this, this persecution that Christians still face, even though Satan's defeated, even though he's bound with Christ's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, um, what he did on the cross, there's still this, uh, this per persecution that we'll face from the world. We live in this time where Christ has initiated his kingdom, right? We see it in the church, but Satan and the beastly kingdoms still oppress and persecute the saints. And not only do we see this happen, but we feel it. I mean, stick your arm out, and you're probably going to touch someone in the congregation that has experienced some really hard, like persecution or hardships in their life, right? When I was listening to uh, a couple different pastors um, as I was prepping on Daniel 7, one of them shared a poem, and I was like, man, this, this is really, really good. And I thought about just describing it, but I thought, I'll just, I'll just share it with you. Um, I looked it up, found it on, online. There's no author credited to this particular poem, um, but I'm going to read it, and I think the point will stand out. Men don't believe in the devil now, as their fathers used to do. They have forced the door of the broadest creed to let his majesty through. There isn't a print of his cloven foot or a fiery dart from his bow to be found in the earth and air today, for the world has voted so. But who is mixing the fatal draught that praises heart and brain and loads the earth of each passing year with 10,000 slain? Who blights the bloom of the land today with the fiery breath of hell? If the devil isn't and never was, won't somebody rise to tell? Won't somebody step to the front forthwith and make his bow and sh bow and show? How the frauds and crimes of the day spring up, for surely we want to know. The devil was fairly voted out, and of course the devil is gone. But simple people would like to know who carries his business on. The Bible's really clear. 
there's a supernatural persecution that Christians face. Now listen, I'm not saying that every single bad thing that happens in your life is because of the devil. There's consequences to our sin. We face consequences of our sin. And, and many times we say, man, I'm so persecuted, when really we've just sinned and we're facing consequences. But you also read verses like James 4, 7. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3 says, But the Lord is faithful, and He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And 1 Peter 5.8-9 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When you think about Christians in Rome and the persecution that they faced, how Christians were thrown into the Colosseum and, and, and slaughtered for the sport, for the entertainment of the Romans. And then you also think about the Puritans who had to flee England because of persecution from a corrupt church. And then you look at the Christians who, who stood up against the Nazis in Germany, even when a, a lot of, of Christians didn't. These Christians stood together and said, no, this is wrong. And the persecution that they faced. And the Christians that are in the Middle East who have been slain for not bowing to false gods. And then, on a personal level, I mean, again, I said it before. If, if, if you know people within this church, you know people who have faced persecution. And so if that's you, or if you look around and, and you feel really disheartened, or if, if you yourselves have, have felt this, then we have to remember our King. Listen, the oppression is going to come in many different forms. Our enemy is crafty, but he's not King. Right? Our enemy is crafty, but he's not King. And when it's all said and done, there is no kingdom but God's. So again, ask yourselves. Really ask yourself. Who's your king? Because if the answer is not Jesus, we've seen the other options. And it's not good. But if the answer is Jesus, and for a time you're experiencing persecution or oppression that we're promised to face, and just remember that it's only for a time and that our King, Jesus, prevails unquestioned, unchallenged. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace that you give to really simple-minded people to look at your holy scriptures and to even garner any understanding from them. God, we thank you for that. And God, as we look at this passage, remind us to draw lines where lines need to be drawn, to hold on to those lines, to let the fact that, that you're in charge, that we have a king in Jesus, and that our king Jesus prevails. Let that be an encouragement. Let, let that be motivation. God, help us not to fear 
the beastly kingdoms that we see today. Knowing that there really is only one king. God, as we step out into the world, when we step out and we face persecution, we face oppression, God, help us to hold on to the truth that you are king. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Amen.